Quick update this morning on some breaking news we brought you in the last hour, and that is the Pentagon confirming there has been an explosion outside Kabul airport where thousands of people have gathered to try to evacuate the country. Initial reports suggest it was caused by a suicide bomber and that there are casualties. Dozens of people, including U.S. troops, have been killed in Afghanistan as suicide bombers targeted Kabul's airport. With a recent attack, the airlifting of tens of thousands of Afghans desperate to flee the country since the Taliban took over has ground to a halt. The Pentagon says that there were at least two explosions, one of which appeared to be a suicide bombing. Thirteen U.S. service members were among the casualties. How important is it to get our Afghan allies out? Um, we confirmed yesterday that there were about 1,500 Americans in Afghanistan, but we've heard there could be many thousands more Afghan citizens who have worked for and were loyal to the U.S. Uh, war effort and government over the past couple of decades. Well, soldiers do not leave fellow soldiers on the battlefield. It's that simple, and these Afghan interpreters uh, are the same way. They were with us on the battlefield, no different from any other soldier in that squad, that platoon, or that company. So we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to get as many of them out as possible because we know what their fate will be uh, under the Taliban. How is it possible to do that after the Taliban has taken over the entire country, including um, U.S. military bases and taking possession of U.S. weapons technology. Well, it's certainly going to require more resources and candidly it's going to require a lot of bravery on the part of those American troops that are going in to get them. But I don't know an American troop that has told me they're not willing to take that risk. I can tell you right now that there are there's this underground railroad, this digital Dunkirk being done by retirees and by former soldiers serving in Afghanistan that's saying, we're not going to stop trying to get out of, get these people out. Uh, we're not just talking about evacuating by air assets. They have now said to many of these people, start taking land routes to Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. So I don't think that we should just cut and run and leave those people behind. We have a moral obligation to help them. We have a moral obligation to do everything we can to honor their service to us, and it's time for us to do service to them. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I have a very special guest on with me for this episode. Uh, given the recent events uh, in Afghanistan with the pullout and um, folks getting left behind there, uh, Americans and, and uh, folks who have worked with Americans in the past, uh, my guest for this podcast is U.S. Army veteran um, Matt Zeller. And Matt is the author of a book called Watches Without Time an American soldier in Afghanistan. And Matt does a bunch of really incredible work uh, with helping, uh, getting people who've helped the U.S. and Afghanistan out. Um, and Matt has served uh, in the U.S. government for a number of years. 
Uh, Matt, thank you for coming on today. How's it going? It's going well, brother. How are you? I'm good. Um, so, we'll, you know, with what recently has happened and is happening in Afghanistan, you know, I would like to touch on that. Uh, particularly, you are someone who's been involved in getting people out and trying to get people out for a long time now. Um, but let's, before we touch on the Afghanistan piece, can we talk about sort of your beginnings and uh, what led you to the army? And then um, if we can talk about, uh, you know, what led you to the CIA as well? Sure. Happy to. Um, <laughs> there's just a massive crash of thunder just uh, went out from the uh, outside. So I, if, I hope I'm not going to lose uh, cell, uh, Internet here. Every now and then, when it rains, I sometimes get bad bad weather just to let you know um no problem yeah so um i i guess you know my my story um begins on 9 11 um i was a sophomore uh in college that day and um i watched the attacks you know happen live on tv and uh my family has a, a long history of military service that dates back to uh the our war for independence um, my grandfather joined the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor and, uh, you know, it just 9-11 felt like our generation's Pearl Harbor. And, um, I was fortunate enough and privileged enough to, you know, have been born in Amer America in the, you know, what I consider to be the greatest country on the planet. And I hadn't earned any of this, you know, I, uh, I had been fortunate, you know, uh, just fortunate enough to come from a, a family of others who had served and through their service had had, you know, guaranteed the the comfort that I had been privileged enough to grow up in. And so um, I wasn't a parent at the time. I knew I had always wanted to be a parent. And I just the idea that I might one day have children of my own. I couldn't stand the thought that I I'm I would if I didn't serve I would end up having to like look at them for the rest of my life and and wonder did I do everything I possibly could to leave their world better than I found it did I do everything I possibly could to to keep them safe and service in the military just because of you know the family tradition felt like the most obvious and natural way to respond to an attack on our, our safety and our values and, you know, our way of life. Um, I wasn't the only member of my family who joined. I'm one of three cousins who went off in the military at the same time. So my, my cousin Peter and I both went in the army and my, my cousin Brian went in the Marines. Um, and we all served in combat at some point um, in Afghanistan. Um, Peter also, I think, saw Iraq. Um, so yeah, I ended up in the army because of 9-11. Um, I watched the attacks happen on live, on live TV and within, you know, a couple of weeks I had enlisted into the military, I enlisted into the United States army. And, um, what ended up happening was, was, uh, I got done with basic training, uh, and the army basically said, you know, you have a lot of leadership, uh, and we'd like you to become an officer. And they gave me the opportunity to finish, um, college through the ROTC program. ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps program. Um, and so I graduated from college. I had a commission in the Army uh, upon graduation. 
And I was supposed to go off again into the army, but I, I won this fellowship at the end of college called the Boren Fellowship. And so part of the Boren Fellowship is you you have to you get a, like a, a graduate degree, but then you also promise the government that you'll go off immediately upon graduation from graduate school and work in national security. Mm. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get this fellowship and uh, ended up at the Maxwell School of Syracuse. And while I was at Maxwell, um, I was an army reservist at that point in a National Guard unit in New York. Ironically, the same National Guard unit that my great grandfather had served in in World War One. Wow. And um, what ended up happening was was uh, two things happened. One, I got recruited in the CIA while I was at grad school. And two, upon graduation and moving to Washington, D.C. to at that point go join the CIA, um, I found out that my National Guard unit back in New York uh, was being activated and sent to Afghanistan and that they were taking me with them. That's interesting. So just I want to rewind quickly. Were you in New York on 9-11? I was in upstate New York in 9-11, okay. not in the city. Okay. I saw it on TV. I didn't get to down. Right. I didn't get down to the city until that October. And I remember my first time back in the city following the attacks. I remember exactly. We were driving down the West Side Highway. Uh, what it ended up happening was like a bunch of like like the friends from college, everybody who was kind of like from the New York City area, we all just piled into a car to drive back. And um, it was my car. So I, I, I basically took all these like New York City kids home. And um, we were coming down uh, the West Side Highway. Uh, and there's that bend at 125th Street, right? Where like yeah. you can kind of like see all the way down the island. And you used to be able to see like where the towers were. And mm -hmm. we turned that bend because that's usually like, the first time you see the towers. And it was just the, it was the oddest sight in the world. Because like anything, like, something that you've like, been seeing like your whole life was just gone. Yeah. And it was like it, it didn't look like you, your, your brain wasn't used to that mental picture. And I just remember like there was like, like somebody gasped in the car like like when like <gasps> like that. And just like it was just it was so weird to be home back in the city at that point. And, um, you know, to. To walk, we we went immediately downtown and ended up walking around as close as we could get, and that add that that awful like set, that smell that like hung hung yeah. in the air for like a year, yeah, and like like that. It just uh gives me the heebie-jeebies even thinking about it. <clears throat> yeah, that that's the one thing. <clears throat> anytime I talk about nine eleven, because I was in Manhattan that day, um, and I think I was in uh, eighth grade maybe um, in school. Uh, you know when they the teachers came and told everybody. Mm -hmm. But the the one thing that I always remember about nine eleven is the smell that just lingered, like the the burning smell. It's almost smelled like burning metal, you know, um, and it just lingered in the air for a long time. Um, Can I ask you something? Sure. As someone who was there and saw it in person, like considering that we just went through, I, I found it odd through like. Now that we're at the 20th anniversary, like the number of documentaries that just recently came out and like like shows dedicated to like 9-11. Have you ever? Mm -hmm. I can't watch any of them. I've never seen Flight 93 or like the the, the World Trade Center movie or anything. I, I, I can't watch anything 9-11 related. Like I can't watch. I've never seen a, a single documentary. I think the only thing I've ever read or saw was like The Looming Tower because it like it takes place up until that point and then it doesn't actually like cover like the event itself it's like it because the looming tower is all like the story of like 
basically right up until that moment is when it ends. Mm. Um, I can't, I can't bring myself to like consume any of that. Can you? I have, when I was younger, um, like I remember like specifically like within the couple of years after nine 11, um, you know, like when all the conspiracy theories started coming out, um, I don't know if you remember, you know, the, the, the planes never hit or, you know, whatever the hell right, the conspiracy right. theories were. Um, so I, I've watched a little bit of what the conspiracy theories were saying happened, like, you know, YouTube videos and stuff. Um, but again, that was years ago, like maybe, you know, 04, 03, 05 kind of time range. But since then, no, I, I haven't watched any. I mean, um, the the neighborhood that I grew up in in northern Manhattan, um, you know, for for a small area, I think something like 30 people died in the towers, and including some people that I knew. Um, so, and I feel like this is probably true for a lot of New Yorkers, you know, like the, the anniversary, you know, people talk about it, people post about it, there are events, but like, for me, it's like, you know, 9-11 is, is one of those things that like, it'll be with me forever, you know, and, and everything that I do. So like, you know, documentaries and stuff like that, you know, not really, um, you know, I, I see the 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 tributes you know in the yard of a church they have a they have a, a piece of steel from the towers that's kind of like in the shape of a cross and you know they put that up and there are headstones for all the people who passed f- from the neighborhood where I grew up in and it's just one of those things where like I I li- it's a part of me forever so like I never felt like a need or an urge or an interest in sort of watching documentaries because I felt like I lived it, if, if that makes sense. Exactly. I, I brought this up with some friends last night because I said, because I, I, we all have the same opinion. Like, if you've lived it. Like, a lot of people just can't bring themselves to watch it. But then a friend pointed out, he's like, yeah, but, you know, there's 20 years of people now who didn't live it. Right, right. And this is how they're going to consume it and experience it. And it's just, it's it's odd to think that my own daughter is of that generation. She's nine, you know, and I, I we've never... I've never sat her down to talk about it or something, but she at some point is probably going to ask me the same way I'm very much like I asked my mom and dad about where they were when President Kennedy was assassinated. Like, you know, like, right. Mm-hmm. It'll be one of those those conversations. But yeah, yeah, that like all things, I guess, related to this war, it began for me on 9-11. So th- that's a really unique sort of path there because you had, you had joined the CIA, but then you were activated at your National Guard unit. Um, yep. To go to Afghan- Afghanistan, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To go to Afghanistan. So we were the uh, embedded combat advisors. Um, um, so the, the the you know you've probably heard the news as of late. You know we, we spent twenty years training the Afghan military, right? Um, mm. uh, I was actually part of that effort in two thousand and eight. I lived on an Afghan army base in Ghazni, Afghanistan. So I, I did not live on a U.S. base. I lived on an Afghan base. And when I went out on missions, we went out with a combination of the our fellow Americans. So my my little particular small unit was what we called the the Afghans called us the mentors, but we were called the embedded combat advisors. So we, our unit was a combination of people who had been trained to train others. I was one of those people, and then the United States military folks assigned to like be our security to protect us. Um. All told, I lived on an outpost with about 30 Americans and then a couple hundred Afghans. 
Mm. And I basically saw Afghans for that year. I lived with Afghans. I ate their food. I was among their culture. We celebrated their holidays, right? Like we, you know, went to, when I went on a mission, we went out with the Afghan police or the Afghan army. Like we rolled with them. They were the one, like it was, um, it was as bad as, you know, as, as, as embedded as one could get. And, 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 um, you know, uh, I'd go back in a heartbeat if I could. I miss it dearly. Uh, and the the base where you at would that be like the equivalent of like an American forward operating base? Like were you like kind of out in the middle of nowhere yeah, type of deal? Or? Yeah, yeah. So the base that we lived on primarily was actually an old Soviet helicopter outpost that the mm. Afghan army had claimed for themselves. And then uh, on that like helicopter outpost, it actually had a, a literally a, 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 a airfield. Because the altitude that we were at was so high that the Russian helicopters actually had to taxi to take off. They couldn't like vertically lift. They had to get a rolling start. And so this run they had built, um, it was steel beams that had been bolted in the ground. They had hammered bolts in through steel beams in the ground. And they had made, you can find it on Google Earth. It's right outside the city of Ghazni, um, just to the southwest of the city. Uh, you can see it um, I, now. It might be an academic park or something, but when I, I, that's what it's at least it's labeled online. But when I was there, it was an old Soviet helicopter outpost that had been re-requisitioned by the Afghan army as an as the uh, the b- battalion headquarters of the uh, elements of the 203rd Corps stationed in Ghazni. And on their helicopter outpost, um, we had a small. Um, corner of the the base that belonged to the americans so like a fob within a fob Mm. and uh when i got there it was uh a grand total of seven buildings eight buildings when i got there yeah no eight buildings yeah um and uh uh um four living quarters uh bathrooms, uh, a medical area, a tactical operations center, and uh, a a small kitchen and dining facility. Uh, And then by the time we left it, we had built it up into a a pretty substantially large base because the Polish were going to be the ones assigned to embed and train with the Afghans at that point. And we, we left them behind a Basically, what would be called a company-sized fob, so a pretty, pretty much larger forward operating base. But when, um, it was mostly empty buildings, you know, when we were there because we were just having the buildings built around us. But uh, yeah, um, Hasco barriers, Constantina wire. We used to joke that we were the most heavily armed prisoners on the planet um, because uh, we weren't allowed to leave. Um, you know, <laughs> we couldn't have any fun. Uh, we couldn't go anywhere without permission. We were behind, you know, walls. There were guards on a tower that would shoot anyone trying to get out or come in. <laughs> but uh, unlike most of the prisoners on the planet, the United States military had provided us with a lot of ammunition and, and equipment. And were you guys um, going out and fighting like the Taliban? Like what, what groups were you guys engaging over there? Um, you know, no, our job wasn't to go like roll around looking for the Taliban. That more belonged okay. to the 101st who were down the road from us. Our job was to go out to the Afghan police and army outposts and make sure that like their units out there were actually. So even when we got there, we were we were some of the initial uh, embedded advisors. So we were just there primarily to do an assessment um, okay. to really get an understanding of what the capabilities were of the Afghan military in our area. 
how trained and proficient were they? Were they getting paid? Did they even show up to do their jobs? Did they have all the equipment that they needed to do their job? Um, you know, do, were they getting the adequate support and, you know, on all aspects from logistics to administrative to, you know, human resources to training to just back up when you're getting shot at, right? Like everything. Um, we had to go and, and basically assess them from soup to nuts. How proficient were they? And in an area the size of West Virginia, divided into some 20 odd districts. So a district is like a county. Afghanistan doesn't have states, they have provinces. Um, so our province, the province of Ghazni, was about the size of West Virginia, just as mountainous, just as rugged as terrain, just as underdeveloped. Uh, one, there's a total of two, three paved roads, that, yeah, three, three paved roads that went through the province. Um, everything else was dirt uh, and uh, mountains and desert and, um, you know, it was it was uh, very much like sort of like the painted desert. Uh, if you've ever been to, you know, just south of Flagstaff in Arizona, um, mm. but at an elevation of some, you know, ninety eight hundred feet <laughs> at the valley floor with sixteen thousand foot mountains around us. Right. Um, and the uh, <clears throat> the Afghan army and police, for the most part, you know, the army was a lot more trained than the police, and and uh, and there were a lot more police outposts than there were army outposts. The army in that area were sort of consolidated to just a couple of main bases that were co-located often with Americans. The police had like the actual like checkpoints on the highway, on the roads and, you know, tiny little outposts in different villages, you know, in disparate areas. And so often when we would go visit these outposts, we were the sometimes the first and only Americans who had ever been there or almost if we weren't the first and only Americans who had been there, we were certainly the first Americans who had visited at least for a year is what we had learned. And so what we were do, we was asked, we were asked to do is we were asked to assess all these, these individual units, these individual soldiers and police. We were asked to rate them all on a rating scale of five, one to five. Okay. So if you were rated at a one, per, given the task that we were rating you on, what that meant was that you could do that task without any U.S. assistance. You were completely mm. capable of doing it independent of our of us being there. And that could be like, you know, do they know how to fire their weapon? Do they know how to clean their weapon? Do they know how to, you know, conduct proper maintenance on their vehicles? Can they plan an operation? Do they do they properly, you know, um, you know, incorporate intelligence into planning their operations? The broad categories like that. But it could also be, are they conducting basic hygiene, you know, do they have uniforms? Can they, if they need to ask for bullets, can they get more bullets when they need them? All of this, you know, every sort of thing that you would need to think that you would need to do to run both a police force or a military, we were asked to assess them at every single level of that and rate them again on a scale of one, could they do it completely independent of the US all the way down to five? No, they could not. They would need to be handheld the entire way. And then, you know, four is mostly handholding, three is kind of halfway. Two is very little hand-holding, and obviously one is they're fully independent. When we got there in 2008, uh, we conducted our initial assessment. It took the better part of till almost the middle of summer to be able to actually get out and visit everybody just because of how rugged the terrain is. I mean, some places took, even though it was 40 miles away, it took two days to drive there, right? Because right. Just, is that just the roads are just not meant for cars roads? and things like that? What roads? Right, right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, what roads? It was, that's why everyone helicopters are the preferred method of transport in that country, right? right. 
Right. There's just like what roads? Actually, the preferred method of transport, helicopters are the preferred method of those who can afford it and have it. The preferred method of transport, honestly, in that country is either donkey or or like motorbike for a reason, right? Because dirt bikes can go just about anywhere. Um, which is why the Taliban fully utilized their dirt bikes against us because they could just attack us, hit us, and then disappear into the foothills. And, right. And we're stuck in you know a thirty-two thousand pound vehicle that is lumbering along and barely is you know making it up the river valley because of how high the elevation is, how much strain is is on the engine. You know, it's just it. None of the, our equipment was designed to be in that area. And um, by the time we did the, our assessment halfway through that summer, um, which at this point it was almost halfway through our tour, um, what we learned was that every single Afghan unit around us was either at a five or a four. There wasn't a single there. Maybe I think we, we assessed that some of the units like stationed in the provincial capital around like the governor's, you know, like headquarters and stuff were at like twos. Right. But nobody was at a one. And we reported this up all throughout our tour. Hey, they're only at fours and fives. They're not getting any better. This is going to take – it's a generational struggle is what we told them. Some of these people are completely illiterate and we're having to teach them just how to brush their teeth, right? And the importance right. of basic personal hygiene in order to make them an effective fighting force. Or the, the importance of not – you know, of the reason why they need to be fed and paid on time so that they don't feel a need to use the weapons that they've been provided to shake down the very people that they're supposed to be protecting in order to survive, right? And then explaining – but you know, what we learned was that culture was endemic and basically built into the system. Um, when you've got you know, the president of Afghanistan under their constitution and the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan – have the ability to appoint all the way down to the village mayor level. The only people Afghans voted for were their member of Congress and the president, the member of parliament, rather, and the president. Everybody else was appointed, everybody, ultimately by the president of Afghanistan. So there basically was a whole system of patronage where positions were for sale and you you had to, you know, you could buy it by bribing certain people a certain amount. And so not a lot, whole lot actually got done in terms of trying to like fix the endemic corruption and like the sort of systemic problems that then impacted like the quality of the forces that we were developing on a broad scale. And it and we wrote about, you know, we, we wrote this all in reporting and I'll never forget what we were told throughout the year by our higher headquarters time and time again was it was our fault as, as the trainers that these Afghans weren't progressing, that surely, surely. They should be beyond fours and fives at this point. And we kept saying, well, look, this is the state that we found them in. Most, you know, most of these guys are telling us well, we're the first Americans they've ever seen. So, you know, like it, this is going to take we don't we're 30 people. <laughs> you know, this is you're asking us in some cases to change. I think the, the size of the force that was before us was something like 20,000 that needed development. This was going to take a while. And right. I'll never forget when we left that year, my boss showed me the final um, uh, like um, region-wide report that consolidated our report and everybody else's. And what we had learned in talking to the other mentor teams around us from the surrounding provinces was they were having the same experience. Everybody was at a four or five. So it was much to all of our shock that when our end of tour for the region, so this is a combination of provinces now, when that report went up to higher headquarters, we were shocked to see that all of the Afghan units under our purview were rated at twos and threes. Wow. Open ones. And the reason why is because we learned they changed the reporting criteria. They doctored the data 
to fit a narrative of success. That was right. 2008. And, and that has political touches to it, right? I wrote about that in my book, Watching mm. That Time, uh, back in it, which got came out in 2012. It's just now apparently only now people are actually caring about it. Yeah. And, and your the, book I is available them, I, everywhere. Yeah, books available on Amazon. And the, the crazy thing is, is somewhere on like a, an external hard drive somewhere, I have all of that reporting saved somewhere. Like all so, of the reports so, that we used to write and everything, I kept everything. So this is interesting. So, like, essentially, you know, what you're saying about your time there is, um, you know, just from the different podcasts and interviews I've done over the years with you know veterans of Afghanistan is like. This seems to be a common sort of theme that you know the the people we're training and 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 working with um, really aren't necessarily ready to do it on their own. But meanwhile, uh, publicly, the you know political leadership or whatever you know they're sort of talking to the American public and saying things like, "Well, yeah, well, you know, we're seeing progress, and you know, it, it's it's winnable and things like that." When the reality on the ground was very different. Um, so how long was your tour there? I was there for 2008, uh, to, uh, April to December. So what, eight, nine months. Okay. Okay. And then, so, but we started, you have to understand we, we did three months of intensive training from January to March and then ended that training in March and then early April they deployed us. So it was like it was a year of my life being deployed, but the first three months of it was to learn the job that we are then being asked to undertake. And were you training in America or overseas? No, we trained at Fort Riley, Kansas, for okay. three months, and then but they actually brought Afghans from Kandahar, like actual Afghan army soldiers from Kandahar, over to embed with us during our training at Fort Riley to to like teach us culture and stuff. And mm. um, those guys were, you know. It was very clear that they had picked some of the best of the best to come over here because they were all very much tactically proficient. You could easily tell immediately they had so much, they had infinitely more fighting experience than just about any of the Americans there uh, because they've been fighting most of their lives. And uh, they were eminently most interested in going to a strip club called Mustang Sally's. That's all they asked <laughs> us about was whether or not we could give them rides to Mustang Sally's and if so, when we could leave. <laughs> um, so would you say like, you know, in your experience and then, you know, maybe some of your understanding of, of how the rest of uh, Afghanistan was going, uh, that the the only units that could sort of work on their own, like, would that be like the, the Afghan commandos or special forces or something like that? Say that again? Like, the in your experience and, and you know, maybe from people you talk to and, and your understanding of Afghanistan... Would you say that um, the only units that you felt maybe could operate on their own were like the commandos or the uh, yes. spe Afghan special yeah. forces? They were. I would. So from my experience, um, the the best and most proficient units in Afghanistan were the commando units that were trained by either the U.S. special forces or the the units trained by the CIA. Um, but the units trained by the CIA were not trained to be like security units. They were they were trained to, you know, hunt down terrorists and kill bad guys. Right. And 
and and and do other stuff. Uh, but those were the by far the, the the most proficient units. And by the way, those were the only units that didn't collapse. Uh, right. When um, the rest of the Afghan security forces and government collapsed recently, those were the ones that were remaining doing the bulk of the fighting. Yeah, I remember reading reading an article about uh, right before the Taliban actually made it into Kabul, um, how the Afghan special forces were setting up to make their sort of final stand. And um, and there were pictures. I, I think there was a couple of journalists uh, around, you know, taking pictures. And, you know, they look like a professional fighting force. They were. Um, right. They are. And, and the, those who stayed behind or didn't get evacuated, many of them have made their way to Panjshir and are now right. the, you know, the backbone of the, well, the remnants of the legitimate government of Afghanistan. Because let's be clear, that's who they are. I know they're all called the resistance, but... In reality, they are the remnants of the legitimate government of Afghanistan fighting against the illegitimate Taliban occupiers. So what is it about the um, the Taliban? Like, were they able to sort of recruit the best fighters in Afghanistan to their side? Like, no. How is it that they're able to sort of just push through a lot of Afghanistan uh, recently, little to no, yeah, yeah. Like, so you got a couple of things happened recently that are like a, a keynote. One is even there's an Afghans. There's no thing you can't you can't buy an Afghan's loyalty. You can rent it. Um, hmm. Afghans are notorious for switching sides when they see the inevitable coming, and that's what happened in 2001. Right, is when we the Northern Alliance suddenly started kicking butt with our backing. A lot of Taliban people just switched sides, and right. people who had been previously Taliban became pro. You know. Northern Alliance pro-Afghan government. That happened here. There are a lot of units, regular, you know, a lot of the Afghan military had been comprised of former militias that had been rolled into the military and their commanders had been rolled in as, as individual commanders. And then the Taliban reached out at sort of the, the local level, at the elder level and said, hey, you know, um, we don't want to fight you. Can you please surrender? I have video upon video that was being sent to me throughout the summer of just unit after unit of the Afghan military throughout the countryside surrendering in mass, right, to the Taliban and 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 not being executed, not being shot or anything, being welcomed, right, through their lines, often is even welcomed into their ranks. So that's one is they, they, they just a lot of people switch sides. The other big thing that happened was um, about three weeks before Kabul fell, the Taliban took the border crossing at Spin Boldak, which is a border crossing in the southeast with Pakistan. And in so doing, that opened up the ability for them to just dump the reserve army that they had been training and equipping in Pakistan for years into Afghanistan. And by the way, the individuals who led the bulk of those reserve forces were um, not only the individuals that were traded for Bo Bergdahl, those were the senior leaders who led it, but also the, five, the, the, the key sort of commanders on the ground and the key you know, sort of lieutenants and sergeants and the sort of the backbone of any good you know, military is sort of the middle management. Those hard, hardened fighters and leaders, who um, they all came from the 5,000 uh, Taliban fighters that the Trump administration forced the Ghani government to release as part of the, the surrender deal that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban a year ago in Doha. 
one of the conditions of, of getting the Taliban to agree to not attack U.S. forces was the U.S. forces would have to withdraw by the 1st of May, but also the Ghani government would have to release 5,000 Taliban fighters held currently in, in Afghan government custody at that point. And the bulk of those people had been people either detained by the U.S. and coalition or the Afghan military over 20 hard years of hard-fought fighting. And once they were returned, guess to the, you know, once they were released, guess where they went? They went back to Pakistan to rest and rearm. Right. Right. So the, you know, the, the pullout of Western forces from Afghanistan, uh, you know, people are angry um, and understandably so. And I think, you know, a lot of blame is being pushed towards Biden. But, you know, as you just alluded to, there's Trump, you know, had this agreement where these these sort of hardened you know, Taliban fighters were released from from custody, uh, which obviously strengthened their um, their advances. Um, so it, the reality is that there is some blame to go around for uh, Biden and Trump. Yeah, no, I, there's, there's blame on both sides. OK, right. let's be clear. The Trump administration, I would argue, set the planted the seeds of the fiasco that that befell us. Right. They're the ones who negotiated the surrender deal, and they're the ones who set the conditions for uh, a rapid de de collapse um, that occurred. The Biden administration failed to heed months and months of people's warnings that this was coming and to do anything adequate about it until the absolute 11th hour, in which, in reality, there was very little that we could get done. Um, right, by the time they started to act. Right? By the time they actually started to act and take it seriously, that this was already, I would argue, already an outcome that was preordained. There was no way to prevent this other than doing something at that point which was completely politically unfeasible, which I, I, I'll be honest with you. I wrote in, in, late, July, in late July an op-ed for CNN in which I said, look, we, uh, the Association of Wartime Allies uh, had the unique ability to pull the Afghan special immigration visa population writ large. And what we learned was that half of them lived outside of Kabul uh, uh, going into the 15th of August, which is the day Kabul fell. So some 44,000 people, because um, there were 88,000 known SIV applicants, that's interpreters and their family members, um, as of the 15th of August. Um, the actual number is likely higher because that was the number that was most recently updated as of the 30th of April 2021. So we, we don't know. That number doesn't take into account anybody who applied for the visa after, you know, from May 1st on, right? Um, what we know is that half of them were outside of Kabul and didn't have a means of getting to Kabul. And so what I argued at the end of July was that the only conceivable way that you could actually save those people was to forcibly reinvade Afghanistan and retake airfields uh, right. to open up air corridors to begin getting them out. And I'm going to be honest, in private, amongst veterans friends, we all talked about that if Biden really wanted to try and snatch defeat or rather victory from the jaws of defeat in this case, um, there would have been no better time to engage the Taliban militarily than the summer of 2021, than maybe the, than maybe the fall of 2001. Because this was the first time in 20 years in which the bulk of the Taliban's forces were committed in the battlefield and in the open. Right. 
not in hiding in Pakistan, not in hiding amongst the bulk of the, the civilian population, but actually consolidated in mass and on the move. Right. And, and that's an important uh, point to note because the Taliban, it wasn't just like this sort of, you know, we're here, you're there and we're going to meet in the middle and fight. It was this sort of hit and run tactics and, you know, ambushes and things like that. Um, which is really a fantastic point that you bring up. Uh, you know, I've seen people posting on social media, um, you know, guys who served or whatever, and um, writing things like, I mean, look, the majority of the Taliban leadership is in one place right now, you know. Um, uh, so it's certainly a unique opportunity, but politically probably not uh, the best, you know, from, from that aspect. But militarily, certainly... Um, but you, Matt, you've been working on getting people out of Afghanistan for years. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you have a sort of unique uh, insight to how this works. And uh, I believe, if, if I can recall correctly, that you were um, giving advice on, on how to do that uh, before Kabul fell. I, we've been trying to argue. So, I mean, this mission to, to honor our nation's promise to our Afghan and Iraqi and really all wartime allies is something that has been a personal, um, you know, um, life's work really of mine for the better part of the last eight years. And I've been, I've been, I've been trying to sound alarm of this, this exact scenario for that, that time that, you know, other than what we called the Trump abandonment, which was just the complete total, just we just left these people and didn't try to move a single person, which is what we thought the Trump administration would do if they were given a second term. What just happened in Afghanistan was my nightmare, was our coalition's right. nightmare, right? It was a chaotic exit, collapsed to one workable airfield in the country in which we're, we told all of our allies, you have until this date to get to the X, good luck. Um, it, it couldn't have been more of a fiasco and recognizing that that was likely to transpire um, uh, and that, that we had been warning about this for years. Uh, my dear friend and colleague, Kim Stafiri, who is one of the uh, co-founders of the Association of Wartime Allies, called me up last October, October of 2020, and said, Matt, it doesn't matter who wins the election. The reality is that um, we're leaving Afghanistan and the SIV program is broken. It will not move the remaining applicants out fast enough that we can't. We simply won't be able to get them through the visa system fast enough to get them on you know, flights to America and sort of the regular process. What we're going to need is a big airlift. How do we sound the alarm? And I said, Kim, I agree. I've been thinking the same thing. And uh, I'm glad you agree as well, because I think together we might be able to do this. Uh, but, you know, how you sound the alarm in D.C. is you write a white paper. So we wrote a white paper over the holidays. We spent that's what I spent my Christmas you know, vacation doing was was working on this, this white paper. And we were ready to go. And then so we waited for the Obama, the, sorry, the Biden administration to um, get inaugurated uh, in office. Uh, and then we, we waited about a week, a uh, week and a half to just sort of, we figured, okay, two week actually we waited two weeks for them to get situated because we figured, all right, at this point, you know, everyone kind of knows where the bathroom is and how to work the computer and the printer and, you know, sort of who's doing what. 
is not the chaos of the first couple of weeks. People will pay attention if we if we try to sound, you know, bring a, a three alarm fire before them. So at that point, I started emailing my friends inside the administration, people I knew, people at really senior leadership positions in the White House. And I'm not going to name names because um, I, I will. If I'm called to testify before Congress, I will absolutely name names then, but I'm not going to do it now because these are friends and and at least I thought they were. But I, I mean, I did. I sent an email on February 9th, um, on, uh, literally entitled, uh, hold on, SIV, um, at special immigration, uh, special immigration fix, as I think was separate special immigration visa fix is the title of the email I sent on, the, on February 9th. I'll read it to you. I won't tell you who it says, but it says, dear so-and-so, I hope this email finds you well. Congratulations on your new gig. And then some personal remarks. Attached to this email, please find a labor of love I've been drafting with a team of experts for the better part of the last year, waiting and hoping it might find a receptive audience in the White House. In response to the recent executive order by President Biden, we offer this report as an overview of the SIB program and our recommended policy actions to fix this program once and for all. We stand ready to assist the administration in your efforts to fix the program and welcome any time you may have for us to discuss this vitally important issue with you further. And then attached to that was the white paper that ultimately we publicized in April when it was clear that despite our continued and consistent and concerted efforts to try to get somebody to give us an audience and to just read the damn paper and take it seriously, that no one was going to return. I, I never got a response to a single email I sent, not a single mm. one. And it was clear at that point that we weren't being taken seriously or that no one was bothering to read what we were trying to put in front of them. And so we figured, okay, maybe if we publicize it. Now we didn't want to, by the way, publicize that, that what was needed was the largest airlift in human history and it needed to begin immediately because the longer we waited, the more likely it was to not succeed and that that was to the Taliban's distinct advantage, right? Because publicizing all that gives the Taliban a big heads up what we're trying to do. And the Taliban have been clear, these people are all on kill lists. They, you have to understand from the Taliban's perspective, the Afghans who worked with us were the worst of the worst. They were the collaborators who helped us kill them and their families for 20 years. Right. They they don't consider them to even be Muslims. They consider them to be apostates, which means some, someone who willfully violates the will of God. There's no greater sin in Islam. It's called the sin of shirk. It's to question the will of God. And, and they did it, according to the Taliban. There's only one punishment for that, death. And it's a religious obligation. So you have to understand, for a member of the Taliban, the murder of these people is an article of faith. <laughs> right? So... We were desperately trying to evacuate them with that being the auspices and the understanding of the environment we were about to operate under, but we didn't want to give the Taliban a big tip off. But once it became clear that no one was listening to us, we figured, well, maybe we have to do fall back on our old strategy of shaming these people into doing the right thing. And so we publicized this report. You can read it if you go on Google and you just type in the word Truman, as in Harry Truman, SIV report because the Truman Project was one of the organizations that published it. We then got a bunch of press around it, thinking maybe that might get people's attention. But nope, it didn't. So then we, we got really specific. We were told what we needed was a bipartisan coalition in Congress that, um, that supported it. So we built them that. We, put it, we gave it to them on a platter. And when I mean bipartisan, 
On the 18th of May, 30 members, so a third of the United States Senate, sent a letter to the president asking them to review and, and fix certain aspects of the special immigration visa program. But most important of this letter was point number seven. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Okay. Um, point number seven of this letter. Again, the 18th of May, 2021, from 30 members of the Senate. Okay. Um, point number seven reads as follows. Review and consider options to evacuate to a safer location SIV applicants with pending applications who may face extreme danger in Afghanistan until the adjudication of their applications. As of the 18th of May, they were calling for an evacuation, the United States Senate. And who signed this letter? What well, was led by Senators Gene Shaheen and Joni Ernst, that's a Democrat and a Republican, but also signed to this letter are people like Patrick Leahy of Vermont and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Patrick Leahy is about as avowed of a socialist as you can get in, in the United States Senate. Mm. Um, and Ron Johnson doesn't think that Biden's the legitimate president because he thinks Trump still is. I don't right. know of another issue that these two gentlemen agree on or are even on the same letter, right? But on this, they're in lockstep. That's how bipartisan this coalition is. When CBS News polled the American people um, during the Afghan evacuation about whether or not the American people supported the evacuation of our Afghan wartime allies, the issue pulled at 82% in favor. There hasn't been an issue that's pulled higher since 9-11. It's the most bipartisan issue, issue in America, at least in the last 20 years. And the Biden administration, who tried to tries to tout themselves as this profound defender and champion of human rights, did nothing. Nothing with a human rights crisis that was clearly identified for them well and ahead of time with a bipartisan consensus on how to solve that problem months ahead of time. We got to the point where when they weren't listening to us as of May, because at that point it was really starting to become of grave concern because we could see how rapidly the U.S. military was, was withdrawing. And every time they, you know, they closed an airbase, it was, well, that's one less airbase we can use to help these people. And, you know, once we realized they were going to close Bagram, that was when we realized they weren't taking any of this seriously. But that happened in June. In May, in May, we put out a website called evacuateourallies.org. And at that point, we detailed the plan down to the specific airfields that they should use and how they should move people and what time frame it could be done and how quickly they would have to do it if they wanted to meet a September 11th deadline and where they should bring people to, and all the follow-on logistics problems that occur when you try to evacuate a large group of people all at once and suddenly need to feed and house them indefinitely. Now, they didn't pay any attention to anybody. I don't even think they read the, the website. It's clear that they didn't. I mean, for the last three weeks, anybody who's been brought to any of the U.S. military bases in the United States have faced, you know, food lines of three to four hours, right, just to get a, a meager piece of chicken and some lettuce right? right because we didn't think about how to you know because the cafeterias on u.s military bases are obviously operating at a reduced capacity because of covid but also in the u.s military you don't just drop like five thousand people onto a base one day and just tell the cafeteria to start feeding them like that stuff is planned ahead of time if you know that you're gonna have an influx of soldiers you plan for an influx of cooks and an influx of dishwashers and an influx of food to be ready to go to serve and feed those people. None of this was planned ahead of time. 
Right. So this was just a complete disaster. Um, a total disaster, which is why what's yeah. needed is Congress needs to like there needs to be an accounting of all of this. What went wrong yes. with the special immigration visa program from its inception to the evacuation, right? To present. Why did the what went? Why did the um, Biden administration fail to evacuate these people when first heated? There needs to be an investigation on just the evacuation itself because there's so many things. I mean, again, if you ask a veteran, any veteran who was involved in this effort to try to get people out, you know, over the last month of August, to a person, I think we'll all tell you that the greatest hindrance to our efforts was the United States State Department, right? So that needs to be investigated. And then why is it that the Afghan government and military collapsed after 20 years of resources and training? All of that needs to be investigated. But if you ask Congress to do it under its traditional manner, you know, through the committee process, you're going to get the kind of bullshit that we saw this week with Secretary Blinken in his respective, you know, um, his respective, you know, committee testimony between the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committees. It was it was political kabuki, right? It was just it was. He didn't get anything of value out of that. It was just each side rallied around their respective partisan narrative and yelled at each other. And that's not going to prevent this from ever happening again, let alone get to the bottom of what went wrong so that we can write better laws and better programs to prevent this from happening again. There, I counted. There's 10 committees in Congress that could claim jurisdiction over this matter alone. They are as follows. There's five in each chamber, so 10, 10 in aggregate, right? There's each chamber's respective armed services committees, each chamber's respective foreign affairs or foreign relations committees, each chamber's homeland security committees, because homeland security is, in, is responsible for the resettlement, each chamber's um, intelligence committees, and each chamber's judiciary committees, because judiciary has jurisdiction over matters of immigration for some crazy reason. I don't know why, by the way. That, that's like the one issue of jurisdiction that's never made any sense to me in Congress is why the Judiciary Committee, the committee in charge of the courts, has matters over immigration. But anyway, um, regardless, that's 10 committees. I mean, do you know how unwieldy that type of investigation could get? What we need is a, is the, is a 9-11 style commission, the Afghan commission, charged the same way as the 9-11 style commission was. Make it bipartisan, make it take down the temperature, Put aside the the partisan bullshit and rhetoric, and actually try to out of it sane and sober and sound policy that will clearly and concisely prevent this from ever happening again. We need. I mean, this is it. We we this has happened now in Vietnam. It happened in Iraq. It's now happened in Afghanistan. It's going to happen in the next war and the war after that. This we clearly have to understand. That at the end of conflict, there are always going to be people who, by their very nature of having partnered with us, excommunicated themselves from the society around them, and that as a result of that are going to need to be resettled, likely here. And trying to build the processes and programs and procedures to do that at the 11th hour is a recipe for disaster and failure. These programs and procedures and personnel and everything should be identified, equipped, and ready to go ahead of time. And quite frankly, if it was part of the doctrinal go-to-war planning process to always consider how we're going to protect those people and safeguard them. If that was just like as a matter of law that you, you, you had to answer the same way you're going to answer the question of how are you going to get the Marines home when they're done with the war, you also have to answer how are you going to take the interpreters who served alongside them and their families. This shit wouldn't happen. And that's what the, that, that is what 
I am going to be fighting for going forward and, I, and, our, and our coalition is. That's, that is the heart of our work, is an accounting of what went wrong and policy in place to ensure it never happens again. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, Vietnam and, you know, a lot of folks who helped America in Vietnam and then, like, particularly the um, the different tribesmen and, and groups that helped these, you know, special forces or special operations forces who were, you know, operating behind enemy lines and that kind of thing. Um, and, and they were just completely, you know, left to hang out to drive by themselves and you know they didn't have the internet in those days whereas today you know as bad as the decision making and and the process to, of uh exiting afghanistan was uh there was a huge effort um i know you know you were working around the clock and and so many others of getting folks out that they knew personally or had served with personally and um the hashtag, uh, I've seen you use it, Digital Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really phenomenal to see. Um, and then you had, like, group of ex-American special operations forces. They're now being called the Pineapple Express, who had yep. sort of snuck into Kabul and, and were getting folks out. Really phenomenal stuff. And, you know, just thinking about having that capability now, you know, back in Vietnam, they didn't have that. And I know a lot of I've interviewed a, a lot of Vietnam <clears throat> veterans who um, they felt even shame over how they just left their counterparts uh, in Vietnam and, and they were annihilated by the North Vietnamese or whatever. So uh, really interesting stuff. Um, so can we talk? Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the effort to get folks out outside of you know any official U.S. capacity? Can you say that one more time? Can you talk about the effort to um, to get folks out, like outside of official sort of U.S. channels? Um, I mean, I've not been personally involved in any of them. I've I've monitored them all, and what, from what I've learned is that the vast majority of them um, were not successful. Um, there were only a couple of them that were successful in even getting people out of Kabul. Uh, and that my understanding is that there have only been a handful of flights that have left since then, and none of them have actually carried away any Afghans. They've only carried away American citizens um, um, because the Taliban will not let uh, anybody but U.S. Uh, basically foreign nationals leave Afghanistan right now. Um, and my understanding is that all of the private exfil efforts at this point are are focused at this point on facilitating keeping people in safe houses. Um, for the time being, while they try to figure out other means of getting people out, um, I've I've heard a very uh, I've heard of a handful of anecdotal, um, you know, uh, cases of people maybe being able to like get into Pakistan or a neighboring country over the land border, but that's you know because they had the right visa, they bribed someone the right way. But I haven't heard of anything that works in bulk for most people. It's it's a real shame. I mean, this is why I said this that this this Afghan underground railroad, this phase two. Is going to be the much longer, much more arduous, more difficult mission in which I, I fear the vast majority of the undertakings are going to end in failure, not success. Yeah, I've had you know, several people that I know, veterans, majority of them who served in Afghanistan were, you know, people were just scrambling to try and get people they know out or or assist in some way. And um, 
you know, there's a, a group of folks uh, called the Global Surgical Medical Support Group. Um, I've had a few of them on the podcast before, and they're primarily uh, retired military medics, special operations medics, and, and they got their start uh, in Syria and, and northern Iraq helping folks who were affected by ISIS, mm. um, treating them and training them on how to treat trauma and things like that. And they were also in Kabul and, uh, you know, trying to help get people out. And, you know, I spoke to some of them and uh, you can tell that they were extremely frustrated because there was just so much, you know, promises of aircraft and, and we can get this and we can get that. And a lot of it just fell short. Yeah, and, yeah. And you can just hear the frustration, you know, when I'm talking to them. You can. I, the number of like. That was the crazy thing about like the 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 you know the the digital Dunkirk sort of movement and effort, right? Was like it was just a ro variable roller coaster of like emotional highs and lows, right? Yeah. Because you would you'd have these moments where like oh my god I think I think we finally did it like you've got this op planned you think you finally mm -hmm. have everything ready to go you and and then everything is going like according to plan and then you hit the snafu and it just all fell apart, you know, yeah. and, or everything that was planned was suddenly and promised suddenly, you know, never came to fruition. Right. And it wasn't because people didn't want to do the right thing. It was often because they were being told by the U S government, no, you can't do that. Nope. Not going to give you permission to do that. Nope. Can't go do that. Sorry. Yeah. I, I remember, um, you know, there were a few points where things kind of came my way. It's like, do you know anyone or whatever? And, I'm trying to connect the right people, and it got to a point where it's like, okay, you say you can get aircraft, right? But do you have clearance from the State Department? Nope. No, you don't. Okay, forget it. Then yeah, we're yeah, not even it. talking you just, to you. You're just right. sitting right there, and good luck, yeah. you know? Yeah, and uh, and it's a shame, you know, and, and there were, you know, a lot of Afghans who risked their lives uh, next to American forces or Western forces to do the right thing, and you know, try and get the Taliban out or whatever. And, and they've just kind of been left out, out there. And, um, and like you said, it's just going to be a more difficult process to try and get people out now. Um, so you are also the co-founder of No One Left Behind. Mm -hmm. um, and as I understand it, you have gotten an interpreter out that you served with. Oh, yeah, um, that is, that is, that's how No Left Behind got founded. So the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because my Afghan interpreter, Janice, uh, saved my life in a battle 13 years ago when he shot and killed two Taliban fighters who were about to kill me. And I made him a promise that if I could ever repay that life debt, all he had to do was ask. Uh, super long story short, it took a number of years to actually get him a visa. But he, you know, after I got home from the war, he contacted me and let me know that because of his service with us and in particular because he had killed Taliban to save my life, the Taliban had placed him on their their kill list, their hit list, and had, you know, given him a bounty and had signed a hit team to hunt him down. And um, he asked if I would sponsor him for at that point, the newly created special immigration visa. And I said, sure, thinking it would take maybe six months, tops a year to get him a visa. How naive. Four years later, we were still waiting for the damn visa. And um, Janice let me know that if I didn't get to him by October of 2013, uh, he was likely a dead man because he was being laid off as part of one of the big drawdowns of U.S. forces. Um, and so, 
you know, as you knew, a lot of people might not be aware of this, but one of the privileges of being an interpreter was that so long as you were employed by the U.S. military, you got to live on the base at, you know, where you worked. So as long as Janice had a job, it was fine. But as we withdrew forces, there were, you know, less and less needs for interpreters. And eventually it just got to the point where they didn't need them anymore. And he knew at that point it was only a matter of time before one of these hit teams found him and he killed him. So um, I started this big public advocacy effort to get him over here and it ultimately worked we, we embarrassed the government into doing the right thing it ended up taking you know like again a national media campaign and then the personal intervention of some members of congress um but i learned firsthand upon when i greeted him at the airport on october 29th 2013 just how little is actually done in, in way of assisting these people you know it was upon it was incumbent upon me to find him a place to live and furnish that home and get him a job and a car and, and, and everything else. And, and I was going through a divorce at that point. I didn't really have a lot of resources to help him out. So I started a GoFundMe because um, I figured I got all this media coverage. I'll use it to our advantage. I'll, I'll start a GoFundMe and maybe we can you know raise him like his first year's rent and food. It worked. Uh, in three days of media coverage, uh, you know, national media coverage, we were able to raise $35,000 from basically complete strangers. And when That's I tried awesome. to give him this money, um, I explained it to him. I went over to his house, you know, three days. So, it's, you know, he, it's, it's a funny story. So it was um, October 31st. I had gotten him a, a small two-bedroom apartment, you know, n- near where I was living so I could keep eyes on him. And then through friends and family, it's just generosity. We had been able to furnish his home in a matter of a weekend. But they're only allowed to bring one suitcase per person if they even bring anything at all. Like the vast majority of the Afghans is evacuated, arrived with the clothes on their back. Right. So it's not like these people are coming with, you know, the towels and dishes and linens and, you know, things that they need to live. And that was like the one thing that no one had donated. Like everybody will donate, you know, you know, you can always usually find like a couch from somebody or a chair or a table or an old bed. Right. But not everybody gives up, you know, sheets and towels and dishes. So I had gone out to Cobble, to um, Target to buy him all this stuff. And uh, on the way home, I had stopped off at the bank to, that we'd set up the bank account to accept all the money in. And I, that's when I learned how much had come into the GoFundMe that it actually cleared. And so I write him a check for 35 grand and I drive back to his apartment. And when I get there, there's a line of kids from his front door all the way out into the street lined up in Halloween costume. And as I'm walking up to the front door, I realize I'm not a very good friend because I haven't told him what Halloween is. <laughs> he's at the top of his stairs with a with a wad of one dollar bills, all the money he has. On <laughs> and per kid, he's given each kid three bucks. Wow. And he looks at me and he goes, brother, you never told me you had so many beggars in America. But why are they all in such funny clothing and only asking for candy? And I was like, oh, my God, it's, it's a holiday. What you, and he goes, brother, we're giving out a lot of cash. I'm going to be out of cash soon. And so I was, I was like, get out of here, kids. He's out of candy. First American tradition you're going to learn. You're out of candy. Turn off the light. And uh, I get him inside his house. And he goes, brother, I gave out a lot of money. They were, you know, they were starving kids. And I was like, well, don't worry <laughs> about it. And I pulled out this check. And I said, this is a gift from the American people. It's in thanks in exchange for your eight years, nine years, I think it was, of frontline combat service. You know, it's not nearly enough to cover our nation's debt to you, but it should be enough to cover your your first year's food and rent. So I want you to, you know, put your feet up and play with your kids and take a deep sigh of relief because no one's actively trying to kill you. 
And he thought about taking this money for all of maybe half of a heartbeat. And then he said, I can't take it, which was not the answer I was expecting to hear. And I said, what do you, if you don't want it, what do you want me to do with it? And then he got really serious and he said, brother, can we use this money to, to start an organization to help others? And I said, we mean help others. And he said, well, what about Hassan and Maiwan and Latif and Habib? He was naming off all the other interpreters who at that point we had served with who were still at that point serving the mission back on the outpost that we had served on, you know, all those years prior. And I said, what about them? And he said, don't they deserve to be here too? He had a really good point. So I said, what do you want me to do? He goes, I want to start an organization to do for them as you've done for me. So that was the birth of No One Left Behind. That was eight years ago. That's incredible. And and since that time, you've been working to bring others over as well? They like, all, you know, yeah, prior to them. All those guys, those those individuals got out at some point and they're no longer in Afghanistan. But yeah, no, that's what No One Left Behind's mission is, is to evacuate the Afghans and the Iraqis who served alongside us and helped them to settle in the United States. And, uh, in the, you know, in the last eight years, um, No One Left has helped do that for over 50,000 people. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. And so if anyone listening wants to sort of you know, keep up with No One Left Behind, um, what can they do and, and where can they do that at? Oh, it's just go to nooneleft.org. You can sign up at the website. Um, they're available on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. I've been sort of paying attention to that um, the last couple of years. Um, uh, really fantastic work that you're doing there. So, okay, so I'd like to um, sort of go back a little bit. Um, so you had been recruited into the CIA and then your National Guard unit had deployed. So you had to, you were committed to that. Uh, so then once you got back, did you then begin the process of going into the agency or right, had you I'd already, already completed that? I just went right back to work. Okay. I I, it literally is like being a deployed reservist. So like I've been in the agency at that point for a better part of almost a year when I got deployed, I went okay. through, I got put into training and everything so that would help me when I was deployed. And then I came back and went right back to my job. I, I literally, I got home from the war on January 5th and I was back at my desk at Langley on the 22nd. Wow. Okay. So are you able to talk about, you know, what your job was or, you know, what your job role was at the CIA? I worked on the Afghan desk. Okay. Okay. And how long were you at the agency? Uh, I was there on and off for a couple of years, um, both as like a government employee as a contractor, so better okay. part of almost five years. Okay, and I know like a lot of veterans and and guys who um who served in the military, or infantry, or special operations, they may go work for some government organization as a sort of security contractor, but you didn't work in that role. You were you were actually uh you know nope. yeah. No, I was I I took the oath, got the T-shirt, yeah. have the photo. <laughs> okay, awesome. And then um, once you got out, you sort of transitioned into you know the the no one left behind kind of work and, and some of the work you don't know. No, I um. So what ended up happening was is uh, 2010. Um, I was at Langley. Uh, I. I ended up finding out that my hometown congressman was resigning in a sex scandal, and uh, mm. I got recruited to run for Congress back home. And so I actually, oh, nice. actually left uh, the company 
um, like like left as a, as a CIA officer, um, ended up getting outed um, through the press coverage that uh, resulted around that congressional race, which is why I don't work for the intelligence community anymore because I'd be a very ineffective spy because you can Google me uh, and find out that I used to work there. Um, and yeah, ran for Congress, didn't succeed, and then ended up going to work as a management consultant. Um, I, the, the no one left behind work uh, was literally something that came out of the blue and just me trying to do the right by my interpreter as just a, a personal life mission. I don't work as a management consultant anymore. This, this, this work has consumed my life for the better part of the last eight years. And as much as I had hoped to be done of it, um, I fear will probably consume the next eight years, if not longer. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really fantastic stuff. I, you know, I've been sort of keeping up with what you've been up to for the last few years. And, um, you know, I've always been uh, fascinated by it. And, and I think it's incredibly important. Um, so if anyone listening wants to sort of follow you, support you, keep up with you, where can they do that at? Uh, easiest way to get a hold of me is just uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook. Uh, you know, I've got a publicly available profile or at Twitter at Matt C. Zeller. Um, um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way is just ping me on Twitter, honestly, at Matt C. Zeller. Send me a message. Awesome. So, Matt. I want to thank you for coming on here. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, are not aware of, you know, the some of the things that you understand. So I think it will provide a lot of value to people to, to hear these things from you. So I really appreciate you for coming on. And I want to thank you for your service as well. John, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for yours and for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs>